This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 29. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 29, brought to you by our friends over at GearSluts.com. Yeah, very exciting show today. Michael Beinhorn is on the show. And those of you that know Michael Beinhorn, you're probably excited too. And uh, those of you that don't know Michael Beinhorn, you should be excited because this is going to be a good show. So let me give you a little background. If you don't know who Michael Beinhorn is, you can either Google his name or you can, let's, I could start you with this. He was in a band called Material with Bill Laswell. And this was many years ago that Bill and Michael helped Herbie Hancock if you don't know Herbie Hancock, well, Google that. Start with that. Anyways, Herbie Hancock had an album called Future Shock. And on that album was a song called Rocket. It's the first time the concept of scratching appeared on a record. Um, it was a cool song. It was a big hit. It was very different. It had a very, very cool video, which at the time, if you were, you know, I was I was pretty young then, uh, early, early, uh, I think, how old was I? 12, 13 years old. It was pretty mind-blowing to see this thing. Anyhow, uh, Michael and Bill Laswell helped Herbie Hancock with that record. Michael then went on to work on many, many records, and some of the records that he worked on, just to kind of fast-forward a bit, we're talking about Holes, Celebrity Skin, Soundgarden, Super Unknown, Mechanical Animals from Marilyn Manson, uh, White Heat, White Light, White Trash from uh, Social Distortion, one of my all-time favorite bands. Ozzy Osbourne, Korn, a lot of different bands, a lot of different projects that he's worked on over the years. Oh, and I can't, of course, I can't leave out the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Soul Asylum as well. So he's a unique guy and, and, and he's kind of known for his, you know, his different perspective, his different way of, of approaching the, the creative process. And he's actually got a new book out. It's called Unlocking Creativity. A Producer's Guide to Making Music and Art. I'm holding it in my hand here, and it's it's great. I burned through it. I got it, read most of it. I would say I read through 95% of it before I talked to him, which was um, great because I could ask him about stuff in the book. So I'm going to include a link to the book. You know, there's a lot of books about recording out there. This is one of those ones I think you need to have. You'll read it once, you'll probably put it on the shelf or lend it to a friend, and then you might end up reading it again because it's got a lot of really cerebral information in it that I think is important. How about that? If you're, I'm sitting here flipping through mine and it's completely scarred with orange, blue, orange and blue highlighter. My kids were like, dad, why are you marking up that book with that highlighter pen? Why do you, what are you doing that for? And I said, because... There's very important information in here, and I want to be able to refer back to it on a moment's notice. I want to be able to find the special quotes. And they were like, oh, then I feared that they were going to start doing the same to their books. But, you know, that's not such a bad thing, I guess, in terms of reading. Um, So there it is. Uh, Michael Beinhorn is on the show today. And I'm going to apologize right now because the call quality sucks. I tried to get Michael on Skype, and we were just having so much trouble. Man, it was a drag. And I was really concerned that we weren't going to have our call. So I just, you know, survival mode kicked in. And I was like, you know what? Let me just call you on your phone. And we did the call from there. So I'll apologize now for, you know, making you endure that quality. But it's kind of like this. You know, there's records out there that you listen to, some, some that I've listened to over the years that the quality isn't that great, but the content is amazing. This is one of those times. This is one of those things I think you're going to, you'll, you'll say it's okay. I can forgive Matt for his Skype failure there. There it is. So my, Michael Beinhorn coming up. I do want to move on to a topic I've been talking about off and on. The Sonarworks software, the room correction software I've been kind of mumbling about off and on. I downloaded the demo. Scott Evans was very kind to lend me his measurement microphone. I've given it a test run and, uh, I'll I'll talk about it further in, in on further episodes, but my initial reaction is it's pretty cool. And in a nutshell, what you do is you it, it gives you a piece of software that you are able to 
send out uh, sine wave sweeps, kind of like taking a, a, a an, an impulse response. Um, so it does that, and it also does these little ticks and talks that help it measure or figure out where you have the microphone placed in relation to the left and the right speaker. And it comes up with a profile of what your room looks like from a frequency response perspective. You know, is there a big bump at 200 or a big dip at, you know, I don't know, get, name a frequency and, you know, there you go. So if you think your room is spot on and you don't need this, all right, more power to you. But if you have questions, you have doubts about the room you're mixing in, you might want to check this out. Uh, I'm not going to say 100% yet that it's it's the thing to do, but my initial tests have made me realize I have some issues in my room and uh, beyond, I mean, I, I'm mixing out of a room in my home and I knew that there were issues, but I didn't realize the extent of those issues until I ran these tests and it's it's pretty mind-blowing. Mind and what it does is it comes up with a profile an EQ profile that comes up as a recallable plugin in, in your DAW. And you apply that plugin on the, the very tail end of your mixing chain so that you can monitor through it, not print through it. The concept is you monitor through it and you make all your mix decisions based on, you know, what essentially is helping to create a more flat response in your system. And it's, uh, I've done some tests and the first test I did to see like how something translated, I, I have a pair of Klein and Hummel speakers. So I tested those. I made a profile for that. And I took a mix out to my car. I listened. And the only thing that I was concerned about was that I put a little too much low end in just a little too much. So you just, you know, when do we not have problems with low end and mixes? Anyhow, so I'm not going to give it 100% just yet, but I'm, I'm pretty close to, to doing that. I think it's kind of cool, and I encourage you to check it out. All right, so I'll stop talking. Oh, my gosh, am I talking a lot. Look at that. The timeline is, is running away from me as I'm speaking. So let's get right into this conversation with Michael Beinhorn on the Working Class Audio podcast. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, and, and appreciate you doing this. Just to reiterate from our, our previous attempts at our call, your your book is amazing, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. Thank you. We were talking about the the process of producing and making it more of a feel based thing rather than a cerebral thing, and it seems that your your book really completely dissects the process in a way I've I've never encountered, and I think that. Uh, it can only be described as uh, a high level. Uh, it could be a, a, a high level college course that maybe a master's program or a doctorate in you know a PhD program in production. And I could see that being taught someday, or you teaching that because it's as I read it, I just thought this. I would love to sit in a classroom with you, Michael, and and hear you talk about this stuff in person because it's it really transcends recording for me. As I read it, I thought, man, this this could be a, a textbook for uh, management and business. It could be a way to, uh, as, as far as how you speak to people and um, the ways in which you get results could also be used as far as, you know, talking to children. As I read it, I thought, boy, I could talk to my, my seven and nine-year-old like this and probably get better results. <laughs> Well, th thank you for saying so, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, obviously having kids kind of uh, contributes to that awareness a little bit. You know, but like, I think what you're what you're seeing in in that is that the book itself is almost kind of like you know taken. It can be taken literally and figuratively, and I guess figuratively, it kind of becomes a a kind of like a code that you can crack, um, re you know, regarding the the state of mind, the kind of like unconscious state almost that a person might be in when they're working, you know, I, I, and I'm only, I'm only speaking from my own experience, but having worked around other people and knowing that there's always something else that's going on in the process and that it's not, you know, purely cerebral. And 
you know, I mean, it, it really is extraordinary. And I think that that's one of the things that makes the creation of art an incredibly extraordinary process. And that's really what, one of the things that I, that I want to focus on here, the idea that art is an extraordinary process and it's imperative that we are able to help artists find their way to creating extraordinary art. You know, certainly we as reporters, producers, engineers, it's important for us to find our way into that and recognize ourselves as artists so we can contribute to that whole stream of process that the artist we're working with needs to find him or herself in as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, I think that's what you're, part of what you're picking up on. The book approaches it from so many different angles and sides. And one of the things that really caught my attention is actually in the, in the introduction, you talk about knowing who you are before you get into the process and being self-aware and mindful. And that really struck a chord with me. How so? It makes me question all the records I've done in the past, which have never been great commercial successes. They've always been Bay Area-based bands that haven't really gone anywhere, to be honest. In reading your book, I, I, I kept going back over scenarios in which I've been involved with, and I thought, from here on out, I feel that it's important for me to address by knowing who I am, by asking myself, what is the goal here? What is the agenda? And how can I be of better service to the people I'm working with? It's it's not just showing up for a job, it feels like, after reading this. I feel like I need to be a little more thoughtful in why I'm there. Well, you know, I mean, I think that people are, are welcome to treat it exactly as they want. My thing is, I would prefer to make the question available to people. How can, you know, how can I help or how can we help people who are in, who are directly involved with helping to inspire artists to get the best out of them? How can we be better at what we do? How can we look at our, treat ourselves as artists and respond from a more artistic place in order to create better art, in order to create works that are more unique. I, I would say that there's certainly a requisite amount of fearlessness, you know, not being afraid that, that goes into that, you know, and if, you, if you're, if you're being introspective, you do, you, you have to look at all sides of yourself. I think some of which can be unpleasant, you know, but not necessarily in, to, you know, in striving to change any of that, just to kind of look at it and go, well, this is, you know, this is who I am, you know, what causes me, to make the particular decisions that I, that I make, you know, what is it, is it from a cerebral place? Is it from, you know, is it from a, a sense of like, this is the right way to go? Am I willing to stand by what it is that I'm trying to, that I'm trying to preach to the people I'm working with? I mean, it's, it's a, it really is a whole process, but the whole self-assessment thing is incredibly important, you know, and it also moves us away from, the whole idea of being distracted from the creative process or prioritizing other things over that process. What really also struck me in the book is, uh, and what was very valuable or what is very valuable is um, you give example conversations of how a conversation might go with a guitar player or singer or a drummer. You give an example conversation of talking with a vocalist and talking about their extracurricular activities, uh, meaning in this case, the singer who was out getting drunk and how <laughs> their performance really um, is suffering as a result. And you also mentioned, can you say, um, it's either that we start keeping the vocals that you've done and cobbling vocal takes together or, or we and, and can edit and tune them kind of like Britney Spears or Ubastank. Is that what you want? And I, I cackled out loud when I read that. I thought just, I mean, that's, that's the funny part of it, but the the way in which you describe these conversations is is interesting to me because it it's getting the point across but you're not being a dick you <laughs> you really your conversations with in, in these examples really seem to guide people critique them with a gentle hand but at the same time 
firmly say, look, man, this is what we got to do to get you on board. And I know that's what you want. So it's, it's fascinating to read those, those conversations. You know, I, I think one of the greatest aspects of recording is obviously the interactive aspect. Working with people in a creative situation is, it's something that I treasure so much. And it's something that has been, you know, it's been, it's been life changing for me because you get into scenarios like that constantly and you come face to face with not, not necessarily a person, but you, you come face to face with all the aspects of that person's life, you know, because you're in a position to critique them and naturally they kind of go, they often will go into a defensive stance with you on it. And, you know, so you're faced with a person who's not necessarily ready to be open with you, but is considering the fact that they're sort of like in a do or die kind of survival mode, because like all of a sudden their entire world is, you know, potentially about to be, you know, taken to task. So it's imperative for me if I'm, if I'm in that position to be able to look at the person I'm working with, to feel them out, to understand what's going on behind them, you know, to recognize that we have to get a specific type of result, that my mission is essentially what they've entrusted me, you know, with. Yes. That, I mean, that, to me, that's first and foremost. If you give me the job, if you lay out what it is that you want, I'm going to follow this to the letter. And oftentimes that means coming back to you as the artist and reminding you about what the actual mission is and that we're all on the same path together. And if you take that mission seriously, there really can't be deviation. You know, I mean, obviously there are exceptions to that rule, but like, how are we going to take this trip together and wind up with the type of results that we all want? And, you know, most important results that we can look back on many years from this point in time and go, this is what I wanted. Because a lot of times when you're in that place where someone's being critiqued and they're trying to defend themselves because they feel it's a personal attack and not necessarily just a critique for their benefit, for the benefit of the project, they forget what we're actually dealing with, that this is going to be a permanent monument that's going to, you know, that's going to be there for all to see for all time, you know, and the best that it can possibly be is based on how, how adept we are at being able to get out of each, you know, our own individual ways to be able to, to achieve that goal that we all set out for in the first place. It's, it's clear to me that when you go to work on a project, you go in deep and you go in with a serious commitment. And I'm curious if, and not asking to name names, but have there been artists that you've encountered over the years that they're not ready for that level of commitment from a producer and, and, or they're not ready to commit at the same level you are? Uh, I see it all the time, you know, and at that point I have to, I have to ask myself, is this something that I want to continue doing? It's constant. You know, I, part of it is the, I think where we're at in terms of how music is being made these days, um, the kind of commitment that's being expected from artists in general, you know, which, which takes me back to the whole process of trying to get, trying to have like engineers and producers really kind of hold artists to what their actual vision is and not trying to cut corners or trying to, you know, get results quickly. You know, of course that brings in, you know, other complexities and realities like budget and time and things like that. But, you know, there are ways around that kind of stuff. It all comes down to what type of monument do you want to leave behind? What kind of record of this moment in time do you want to leave behind? Or do you just want to make a record the way everyone else makes records? have it be the kind of thing that slots into the specific genre that you work in and expect it to be kind of, you know, just a, a product that someone can like swing against the wall and hope that it sticks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because I feel that some of the bands in the past that I've worked with kind of have that product on the shelf kind of mentality and, I think it's up to producers and engineers to really kind of help shift focus and, and get them to realize that what they are doing is art and it's important and it doesn't have to be done like everybody else. Yeah. It's really all about in in integrity, you know, and that, that gets back to, you know, how do we help artists become extraordinary? Why is there a need for extraordinary artists? What is that? What's the function of art in society? You know, what is it really doing here? And the answer is, is very simple. Like, we need art 
to be able to feel connected to something bigger than we are. We need art because it helps unite us. It helps us communicate better with one another. It's an important part of the fabric of our lives as people that live together in a community, in a society. And without it, we suffer. And an extension of that question is, you know, how can we get art to function in this society right now? And, you know, this, again, is one reason why I've written this book, because I really want to open the dialogue up. And I really want to have people begin to address these issues. I'm not going to presume that I'm the first person to do this or the only person who has these thoughts. But I think it's really, really important, especially now to begin to address these things. And I love how you talk about the different processes. And uh, one of the early processes is the interview process. And you talk about questions that you might ask an artist. And I think that that is ways for those that are listening, if they're questioning you know, what you and I are talking about now, if they're saying, well, how do I, how do I find the right kind of people to work with? And I think by, and I'll, you know, I'm not trying to pander to you or, or really hype your book here because I just sincerely feel that your book is important. But I think that for those listening that reading through and, and especially when we talk about how to, how to suss out whether an artist is up for a good uh, monument making process, the questions you might ask an artist uh, is is a really good place to start because it it can really weed out those that are just like making quick little vanity projects versus those who really want to express themselves uh, strongly for the long term. It's it's tough though, you know, because people need to work now, and the field is is narrowing as far as resources. People want to be producers, they want to be engineers, they want to be programmers or whatever, and a lot of people feel now that. They have to take every project that comes their way just to, you know, just to stay an operational producer, an operational engineer, and be able to pay their bills and stuff like that. And these are practical considerations. But it's at a certain point, you kind of have to ask yourself why, again, it gets back to the self-assessment. Why am I doing this? What do I hope to achieve? Why did I get into this in the first place? I don't recommend starvation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or being unable to pay your bills to anybody. But there's a certain point where I think that as a, if you, if you look at what you do as something more than just being a functionary of some sort, you kind of have to look at it and go like, how seriously am I going to take this stuff? Am I willing, do I have ethics and am I, am I willing to live by it? You know, am I willing to take this seriously or am I just going to be another guy who's like struggling in the pit? with everyone else who's trying to do the exact same thing and make the same kind of records in the same kind of way and contribute to, uh, you know, a lack of originality. You know, there's a, there's just, a, there's a certain point where it's imperative to take a step back and go, why am I really trying to do this? I'm getting ready to work with a band this month and all the members have day jobs. They're doing original music and I, f I find it really great, but their availability is limited because of their outside lives. So I think we can make a good record, but how do we make a record that would uh, hold up to the ideals that you write about in the book, given those limitations? Obviously, a lot of that's subjective, but you know, in, in a general answer to what you're saying would have several parts, one of which pertains to time management. The question is, what does the artist need? If the artist could conceivably tomorrow walk into a recording studio and make a great record without you, what else do they really, what do they need from them? What is it that you're going to bring to them? You know, and to, you know, the continuation of that is how can you apportion the time that you have in order to be able to bring that to them? You know, I mean, I've laid some of that out in the book, so it kind of provides a bit of a roadmap. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are there are, are tools such as, you know, Skype, email, FaceTime, that you can stay in touch with people outside of a rehearsal studio or a recording studio. You know, so you can take time to listen to what they're doing, because really, initially, what they're looking for is your input. Assuming, of course, that, like I was saying earlier, this isn't a band who are just so absolutely flawless and 
have no actual need for a producer or someone overseeing the project, but they could literally walk into a studio and not and without any assistance, throw down a great recording. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, how do you manage your time so that you're able to help these people achieve what they need with the limited resources that you've got. Okay. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically, it's, it's in that, in that instance, it's a matter of just using your head. How do I budget my time accordingly to help these people? What's, what are their needs? What are issues? What are structural issues? What are arrangement issues? What are performance issues? You know, are their songs great? Are there some songs that are good? If so, why? If so, why not? You know, you know, do they need a particular song? Are they missing? Any, are they missing any material? Does the body of work feel like it's completely well-rounded, or is there something else? You know, and you have to assess all these things. You have to use yourself, your own intuition, which gets obviously us back to the point of self-assessment. You know yourself. You can use you, you will use your intuition as a guide to be able to answer these questions. You know, and trusting yourself to be able to do so. Chapter six in your book really goes deep into meditation and uh, relaxation. You you do mention taking care of the body and the mind quite a bit in this book. I think that's something that a lot of us overlook. We don't, sometimes we can ignore this, the warning signs our body's uh, giving us as far as, uh, <laughs> hey, you know, maybe you're a little too tired or fatigued to be mixing this right now or... <laughs> Or maybe you're yeah. too hungover to sing or whatever it is. I, I'll never forget. Okay. I, I, I went through a, a period of time going in and out of smoking many years ago. I don't, I haven't smoked in years, but I had quit and I was working with this band and all the band went out to take a cigarette break. You know, I felt that, that desire to have that camaraderie. And I thought, oh, I, I'll have a cigarette with the band. No big deal. I, I took a, a couple drags of a cigarette and my head just started to spin and my hearing just went out the door and I really was lost. I was like, that was really stupid. I just kind of screwed up the, the designated driver kind of status that I had. And now I'm just as goofed up as the rest of them. <laughs> so, I like the way you put that, the designated driver status, spot on. <laughs> And your ideas about meditation, relaxation, mindfulness, all of that, I really, really enjoyed and thought that's, that's something I need to pay a little more attention to myself. I'm assuming that this has taken many years of, of experience for you to come to this conclusion, or has this been a long-term practice of yours? It's something that I have worked with uh, over many years, although there have been periods of time where I pretty much let it slide. And I think that being in touch with that kind of stuff with meditation and listening to what your body is telling you, it's connected to using your body as an intuitive tool so that you can recognize what feels good to you, what doesn't feel good to you. You know, what, what you feel is right, what you feel is wrong, uh, which is something that I obviously address. I hope plaintively enough in, in the book, you know, and it's really important when you're in a situation where you can go down the road of becoming far too cerebral and get your mind far too into the work that you're doing to do something meditative because it really shuts the mind off completely. It, it, it is a tool to help you divert away from, the, from how your mind works. You know? And as I, as I wrote in the book, there's lots of ways, there's lots of different meditative techniques that you can use to be able to achieve this. And eating is the same thing. Like, for example, I have blood sugar issues. So I have to, sometimes I just have to snack constantly just to be able to keep my blood sugar up so I can actually stay focused and, and not weaken. But I work with a lot of people who are unaware of this kind of stuff. And you can, you can actually see them gradually deteriorate over a period of, you know, an hour, a couple of hours. And they're not even paying attention to it because they think that they're supposed to be focusing on their work, which, you know, they obviously are. But having the additional awareness to go, you know what, I can't do this right now. I think I need to take a break and eat something. And, you know, I find myself kind of staying on people going like, 
you know, I can hear your voice going, the high end's gone out of your voice or something like that. You know, you got to get some food in you because you're weakened. That's a sure indication to me in a lot of cases that a, that a vocalist is unable to, to, sing, to perform at, you know, at peak strength. And if that's not attended to, then they're going to basically use their body physically, you know, their, their musculature and their, their stamina, actually not their stamina, but just adrenaline after a while to prop themselves up. And then when that happens, they can actually hurt themselves. You know, um, I, I used to suffer a lot from blood sugar issues where, uh, when I get hungry, I kind of get a little tunnel vision and then start to really get anxious. And that was a real problem for me. And just, I'm not, I'm not a nutritionist and I haven't consulted with one, but I found that for me, when I started to really cut back largely on processed sugars, a lot of that disappeared oh. for me. And yeah, and it's, it's truly amazing now when I get hungry, I actually feel like, oh, you know what? I haven't eaten. I really should eat because I'm feeling that, that true hunger in my stomach, whereas before I associated hunger with the drop in the blood sugar and w would eat like crap to, to compensate. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny uh, because I remember when I would go to certain recording studios and they'd have a big bowl of candy, <laughs> you know, and they'd have lots of really tasty, like soft drinks in the fridge and stuff like that. Because, you know, I mean, you're in recording, right? It's all about sugar and caffeine to keep you going. And, you know, we, we never considered the fact that those artificial means are actually just propping you, your body up uh, in ways that can have really detrimental long-term, uh, you know, effects. And, and sure, sometimes you need to go longer than you can probably tolerate going. You, you know, you're going to pay for it at some point, but you just... <laughs> You, you kind of have to do it, but there's still ways around that. Like I haven't had a drink of coffee like, in years. You know, I just know what it does to me, and uh, I think at this point, of, even a sip would probably send you to call the ambulance and, and the medevac to to rescue me from that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, also the thing is, is that you don't. We also don't know how that stuff's affecting our ability to be able to make. The, make decisions like knowing that I've got a blood sugar issue, for example, I can recall now all the times when I would like, when I do things like that and, and get really kind of like cranky, <laughs> you know, and not have the same kind of acumen to take a step back and make decisions objectively and carefully and really kind of consider what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, that combination of hunger and, and anger, I think they call that hangry. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and and there's just there's so many simple fixes for that. It's hysterical, you know. I mean, you eat something that's that's nutritious and tastes good, and you're probably going to be okay. Yeah, you know. Want to talk about something that you you bring up a couple times at different points in the book? You talk about remaining neutral, and you talk about dealing with difficult artists that might throw a fit or really try to exercise dominance over the creative situation or the session. And that, that also really hit, hit me in a good way. I thought, wow, that's, that's good. Because I know when people get aggressive with me, my adrenaline starts to flow and it's hard for me to mm -hmm. step back. And I want to know if, if, have you had several situations mm -hmm. where you had to learn this of taking a deep breath and remaining neutral? Or <laughs> have you had a few run-ins where you're like, Oh man, I got to learn how to deal with this shit. This book is obviously based 100% on observations, you know, and the observations come from personal experience. So you can pretty much fill the blanks in. I think you have to work with you have to work with what works, you know. Uh, in a situation like that, you know, the question is how do you how, how do you keep things on an even keel and, and stay productive? You know, one possible answer could be don't engage. And I think ultimately that's what it comes down to. This too shall pass. <laughs> <laughs> and in some cases, people just want to blow off steam. And if that's all it is, then, you know, well, 
<laughs> they can they can blow up all the steam they want. In the bands that I've been in in the past, I learned kind of the art of okay, you know, when we're making a record, this is before the days of Pro Tools. I, I made some records as a band member uh, with Larry Hirsch and Joe Ciccarelli and um, Gil, yeah. Gil Norton. And I learned, okay, this is how it works. We do pre-production before we go into the studio. But something that was new to me in reading your book was talking about preliminary pre-production, the pre-production before the pre-production. Can you talk a little bit about how the 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 pre-production differ, differs from the preliminary for the audience? That's really something that I haven't, I, I don't know how many other people work this way. It's just something that I do because I like to get as much prep work happening as possible. You know, like I said before, I like to dig in as much as I can and get a sense of who the artist is and what kind of record they want to make, what kind of record we can make together. And I don't feel that I'm going to get a good read on that unless I'm as far into the material as I possibly can. So this gives me the opportunity to get to know the artist without being in a work situation with them or, or direct necessarily one-on-one in a rehearsal room work situation and also review their material on my own. You know, it requires a lot of listening. It requires some conversations. You know, it may actually require going to someone else's house and sitting with them in a room and, you know, strumming guitars and things like that, picking songs apart, things like that. Where that differs from pre-production is, at least in my cosmology, is that in in pre-production, you're going straight into a rehearsal studio and you're pulling apart the song. You know, I think in most people's cases, you're going into a, pre- into a rehearsal studio cold and the producer with the band that is, although presumably the producer will have lived with the material for a while and he'll be able to go to the artist and say, you know, why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? With preliminary pre-production, you're just backing yourself up. You're giving yourself more time. It's, it goes back to what I was saying before about the whole time management aspect of it. How am I going to be able to use my time best relative to this artist in this project? You know, by incorporating both preliminary pre-production and pre-production into a project, I can pretty much guarantee that, you know, that almost everything that I would like to deal with or that the artist would like to deal with regarding the structure of the material is going to get covered before we actually start that seems to make a lot of sense to me. It, it, it It's almost like a get-to-know-you process before we step into the rehearsal to start tearing songs apart and establishes kind of a where you can establish the trust early on. Yeah, exactly. And also have a deeper understanding of the artist's work. Do you happen to record early conversations with the artist so as a point of just documenting or... Uh, as a point of being able to go back and reference things they say? Like, I mean, just in terms of like having a little uh, phone recorder or a Zoom recorder on you? No, I've never done it. I mean, I, as long as it's not illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they'd be in aware the of it. I'm in, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely a consideration. I, I usually remember all the significant aspects of the conversation, you know, to me, it's also about what I'm left with after I speak with someone, like, how do I feel from that conversation? You know, so I'm, I'm assessing that. I mean, you know, sometimes I'll write stuff down if it's significant because the interaction is really interesting to me. It's, it's fascinating. It gives me insight into who this person is, who they think they are, who they say they are, who they're presenting themselves to be how the rest of the world actually sees them that they might, that they might not even be aware of. You know, the whole process is really interesting. And I tend to go by what I'm left with at the end of the conversation. Certainly someone will have said, or the artist will have said a few key things that will probably stand out. You know, there's always, there are always a couple of, of uh, statements, declarative or otherwise, that are really, really either insightful uh, and or, well, that are insightful and or telling about the person and can and can really be helpful in terms of figuring out what is what the person's true either intent or agenda actually is. 
in this process? Because you can come across people, like you were saying before, who actually have more of an agenda going in the background than they have a sense of, I really want to move forward with this. I want this, this work that I'm doing to, to have meaning, to matter. Uh, and to me, that, there's a big difference between that and having an agenda when you're, when, when you're involved in an artistic process. Just a little bit of a transition. Uh, uh, page one in the introduction, you say, I seduced myself into believing I was a businessman, not an artist. Uh, can you talk about that a, mi- a bit? Um, specifically that line? You said once upon a time that you did this. You thought you were a business person. What, what is that in reference to? <laughs> it, it, it's interesting that you, that you are bringing this up because that's part of the reason that I, that I wrote this book. Uh, you know, I, I think that people have moments in their lives where they, um, where they get, where they get epiphany and to, and that was one at, at a certain point in time, I really felt that I was going to move up more of a corporate ladder in the music business, as opposed to being on the creative side of things. And it took me probably longer than it should have for a sentient, relatively intelligent person like myself figure out <laughs> that that I just didn't belong on that side of things, that it was, uh, that it was not the direction for me to head it. But I was getting, I was under a lot of, uh, I'm not going to say pressure, but it was more influence from people I was working with because my success in that direction was pretty much guaranteed. But in the long run, it didn't feel right. It wasn't the right move. And I just, and I, I was never cut out for being that kind of person. It involved, using facilities that I don't feel I have. My best use is what I'm doing and what I've, what I've, what I've been striving to do, you know, first artistically and then sharing those ideas and sharing that process with other people so that they can somehow hopefully benefit from it. Mm-hmm. But I do want to ask you a business question. What, like, what do you think of, for example, it, this was a, I don't know if you saw this, you answered one of the questions on, on the Facebook page, but somebody uh, jotted something down today said, I want to know what Michael thinks of this whole Apple music deal in regards to <laughs> artists. And uh, I don't know, what do you, what's your take on that? I think that we have a long way to go as far as, um, I, I, it, it seems like distribution has become much more important to people now than the actual commodity that's being distributed. Hmm. And unfortunately, it's a sad commentary, not only on how corporations value music, but also how the general public values music. I'm not going to say it's their fault because I feel like they've been led into the situation by virtue of people who are trying to sell them stuff. I don't believe that anyone has really come upon an ideal means to be able to, um, to, to, I guess, distribute music in a way that's equitable. I don't think the business model exists on the music side. However, um, we're seeing business models that involve streaming that work in, in, in other industries. I mean, for example, I got handed this thing today, which is fascinating, about Netflix. And the statistics on Netflix are very interesting because Netflix, unlike Spotify, is very profitable. They stream, in fact, most of what they stream is actually a lot of, I think it's called D-stock, like movies that you wouldn't even want to like rent on video. But, you know, people will pay like $9 a month to be able to, um, or $8 a month actually, to be able to have access to thousands and thousands and thousands of movies. I'm one of them. Uh, Yeah, and so am I. I. I know plenty of people who are. They charge less than every music streaming service. They have no free tier. And here's something that's really significant. They invest back into the creative community. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars creating new programming that people will watch. They spent more on creative programming than, uh, I think, serious radio spent on pre-1977 music. And someone just sent me an article today about how Netflix looks like it's going to surpass all four of the big networks in a fairly short amount of time in terms of audience size. Now, this is, I mean, this is significant stuff. It is. You know, 
And I think that it's also very, very telling on a lot of different levels. I think it should be heartening news for people who are in the music who are in the music industry, not necessarily in record companies, because I don't believe that they have answers at this point, you know, but I feel that there are ways that we as a community can create stuff that we can also work with, uh, with certain businesses, with business models, wherein we can, cre- you know, we can create better music. I think that this is one of the most important things, like, and, and it brings me back, obviously, to this idea of artist development, helping create more, you know, greater artists, people who are more extraordinary. You know, I don't see any streaming services that are contributing to the artist community that are putting back into it. I mean, Spotify recently uh, said that they were going to start creating playlists for people who want to run and stuff like that. And it's like, um, this is not how you create new exciting music. You don't try and cater to people's lifestyle interests. You know, what you do is you think, is, is you think you go back to the intrinsic core of what music is, what it represents to this, to the, to the society. What, how does it really matter? Inspire people to make better music instead of getting like a couple of techno artists to make some, to, to make playlists about what, for, for people who want to run. Like, the, I mean, to me, that's just ludicrous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a, it's not it's not thinking in a clever way or an expansive, fearless, courageous way about how to make a better product, to make a product that people are going to be more interested in, that there that people will actually be willing to give up a free tier anywhere, so that they'll go to get something that's going to have more meaning to them, where they can feel emotions, you know, where they can be moved by something instead of go oh, you know. Well, you know, I have this playlist for running, so I can run and I can listen to this. I can make that playlist myself. (laughs) (laughs) And it'll be way better. Thank you. Yes. I mean, thank you very much. You know, I can personalize it, too. I don't need you guys to create songs to help me run, to curate it. You can do better than this. You know, people can do better than this. There are models out there that can inform us. I don't think that Apple have it. I don't think that Spotify have it. Um, I don't think that title, I don't think that there's anyone who's doing streaming right now, music streaming that is, that really has that that kind of understanding because they don't understand the co- the commodity that they're selling, just like the record company, and that is ultimately going to be something I think that keeps that business from being profitable. I think part of it really pertains to putting back into the community that they're deriving content from. Netflix certainly is uh, a good model. And I, and I'm glad you bring it up because I feel like, and I I look at the bill each month and I go, Oh, of course I'm going to keep my Netflix account because I mean, I look forward to the original programming. I look forward to the oddball films. Like my kids and I watched a thing on, um, the history of Atari and the burial Hmm. of the Atari games in the desert in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And it's, as you say it, my mind lights on fire with ideas of, wow, Netflix could actually come out with a music streaming service that has a video component that helps, you know, maybe they create documentaries about the making of a new record. And then by the way, you can stream it here. And yes, we're going to pay the artist a a decent uh, bit of money back for what you're hearing. Mm -hmm. There's, there's all kinds of possibilities. And it's funny because Netflix Articles about Netflix, conversations about them keep coming up. And I wonder if the people at Apple or Google or Tidal or Spotify are paying attention. Um, I I would imagine that that they're paying attention to them the way they would pay attention to any other corporation that's involved in entertainment. You know, it could also be just in the periphery. It's really hard to say. But one thing I can tell you is that no one on the music side of things is really considering the importance of trying to make, of, of trying to put back into the artist community, of trying to help develop artists, you know? And that's one reason why I think it's important to have outreach going on and to have these conversations. I mean, I try and involve as many people as I can in, in discussions like this and, and do as much as possible to, you know, to, to, to speak 
openly and publicly about this kind of thing because if we don't talk about it, people are going to forget it. And Netflix could wind up being sort of like an anomaly. The company, you know, the one or, you know, handful of companies that make money off streaming what it is that, you know, what it is that they've got. Whereas every other company has fallen flat on their face. I mean, we have yet to see what Apple does, but right now I, I think that they've, they haven't exactly put their best foot forward. There's way more controversy around what they're doing than there is actual, uh, you know, a positive kind of sense that, oh, this is going to be exciting and wonderful. And, you know, Spotify is still the world leader in music streaming and they're not profitable. You know, I watched the video of Apple Music with Trent Reznor and I thought the the free thing struck me uh, immediately before the controversy really started up with Taylor Swift. And I thought, you know, Trent Reznor strikes me as somebody with um, integrity. And, and I wonder if he ever raised the question of, you know, guys, this is not going to go down well with people, with with artists, you know, three months of no, of not getting paid. But there he is right there on that Apple marketing commercial. And I thought, hmm, I wonder where he's at these days just with his process and musically and being on board with, you know, Jimmy Iovine and, and Dr. Dre and, and the whole thing. And I don't know. It struck me kind of funny. Well, it's hard to, it's hard to know. I, I know what you're saying. It, it, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I, don't know if you saw what I posted on Facebook, but, you know, one thing that struck me as ironic is the fact that while PC was always the computer that people identified with business, Apple was always the computer that people identified with artists. And the arts are a significant portion and happened for many years of what made Apple the biggest corporation in the world. And that's the point that you really can't argue. I mean, obviously, I'd say a much larger portion of their business probably goes to mobile devices now. But, you know, it's our community that really was supportive of Apple machines for everyone running Pro Tools. I mean, how many people did you know who were running Pro Tools and Reason and, you know, Avid on PCs? It just never happened. And this to me is the whole the, you know, the kerfluffle about, about the royalty rates and things like that. And just the general way that they're doing it, it's, it just strikes me as a complete backhanded kind of move and something that's, that really has no, I, I don't think that you can really find a way to excuse it. I mean, at the same time, they continue to be the only company that really makes equipment that services the artist market. So it's kind of hard to say, well, I'm going to do a total... Um, moratorium on Apple products. It's just that they've created a situation where they they serve a community and they have served the community, but now the community serves them. It's an uncomfortable irony to, to have to deal with it. Like, why would you do that? You know, especially being a, a company that wants to portray themselves as the good guys and being ethical, that is kind of, that, that's, I'm not going to say it's completely unethical, but it's a move that kind of like makes one question what your, you know, what your ethics really are. I, th I wonder if it's just indicative of the differences between Tim Cook's style and, and Steve Jobs' style. And Steve Jobs, one can say what they will about him, but I mean, he did have a, I think, a soft spot in his heart for music artists. And I don't necessarily, I'm not trying to cast judgment on Tim Cook, but I wonder if... You know, it's just a difference in it's a difference in style. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what. They're going to roll it out um, what, tomorrow or something like that. So we'll see how the public responds. Yeah, and that will tell all. You're right. Um, before we uh, we're kind of we're slowly running out of time here, but I do want to. I have to ask you this because this is one of I told you I wouldn't get into equipment questions with you, but I have to ask you because I have you here on the phone. I want to ask you about the tape machine used on Soundgarden Super Unknown that I've heard about, and I want to, because I I want to hear it straight from you. Tell me about this this <laughs> machine. Um, I think you're thinking of a completely different tape machine. It's the tape machine that I used on Super. I actually used two tape machines. Um, they were both Studer eight twenty seven. One was a sixteen track. And the other was a 24-track. There was no Martian technology used on that record at all. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know where I, it, maybe it's internet rumor, but I had heard about a two inch eight track running at seven and a half IPS. And I was. Yeah. 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 What is that? Uh, I, I use, I use that on other records. It was kind of a, an extrapolation on the idea because I love two inch 16 track. It has a completely different response than a two inch 24 track. And I guess I just sort of thought, well, if you can, if you can get that kind of change in frequency response by, by make, having less tracks on the same head block, what happens if you have like half as many tracks on the same size head block? And, you know, so I had a, a machine, I found a, uh, a Mark 1 800 that was actually an 8-track, and uh, I had the head block commission. And uh, because it was a Mark 1, it didn't run at 1530. It ran at 7.5-15. So uh, that was kind of like an added uh, attraction to the whole to the whole process. Uh-huh. And what record or records did you use that machine on? I only wound up using it on two records. Uh, the first one was uh, Osmosis by Ozzy Osbourne. The second was uh, the record I did with Social Distortion, White Light, White Heat, White Trash. I, in the end, I think in Mixdown, we kind of lost what the machines actually did. But it's funny because I was listening back to some rough mixes like a while ago, actually. And uh, it's, it's just a whole different animal. You know, I mean, I gave myself eight tracks to record all the drums on this stuff. Which is, it's funny because I usually set up a fairly extensive mic array. So I had to compile a lot of stuff, which is, you know, it's kind of a fun exercise for someone who likes access. But it's, uh, you know, it just didn't behave like any other tape machine I'd ever heard in my life. I've never heard anything like it before or since. Technical stuff is fun. You know, I... I just have been feeling more and more that people have been leaning on technical stuff a little too much over the past, you know, 15, 20 years. I, God knows I'd started to as well. Again, one of the reasons that I wrote that book was because I wanted to kind of try and pull the conversation back towards something other than, than technical stuff than equipment. You know, I just felt that a lot of books had already been written that pertain to tech, to technique and, and using compressors and things like that. And, you know, but people were kind of ignoring, you know, the, the intent side of it. What, you know, the, the process of actually making a record from a, you know, for, from a process oriented point of view and from a philosophical one too. I mean, I, I'm assuming you're, you're getting to the point in the book where I kind of am speaking more from a philosophical perspective. Yeah, I'm on, uh, like I say, I'm on chapter 19, and I'll, and I'll most definitely be finishing the book uh, this afternoon. But Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. You are quick. Oh, yeah, yeah. When, you know, I don't do a lot of reading, but when I find a book that I like, my wife is keen to point out, she, she's an avid reader. She reads like, I don't know, three books a week. But uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, she's, in, Good for her. she's intense. Um, and I'm, I'm an amateur compared to her in that department, but... Man, when I find a book I like, uh, your your book, the Glenn Johns book, really fascinating reads. Okay. Really excited to, to that I got to talk to you today, and I and I hope to do so again in the future. Once again, fantastic book, and I'll include a link for it uh, on the website. And I'll tell everybody I know. I see that Ross Hogarth was on Facebook talking about it, and, and I was like, "Yes, mine is on the way." <laughs> Well, I, I feel very, I'm very happy about that. You know, again, I think it means, I, I think it indicates that it, that there is a, a space for it in, in, in our culture in in the, in our community and that it, it, it is going to open up a dialogue that, that we really do need to have about that. So, you know, I, I feel very, uh, I feel very fortunate to, to help do that. It's appreciated. And uh, thanks again for being on the show, Michael. It's it's truly an honor. All I could say is, is thank you and take care. I really appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. You take care and uh, talk to you again. All right, man. Thanks. All right. See ya. It was a pleasure. Take care. Well, I apologize once again for the horrid sound quality of that call. But wow, 
what a great conversation and uh, what a cool guy. Uh, once again, thank you, uh, Michael, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning in. And once again, Michael's book is called Unlocking Creativity, Producer's Guide to Making Music and Art. And uh, I highly recommend it. I definitely think you should read it. And I will put a link on the website so you can go check it out. That's it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.